0: Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance podcast. On today's episode, we have Maggie Award, who is a registered nurse that has specialized in functional medicine working with elite athletes. Maggie utilizes biomarkers to assess athlete health. So, how and why she does this will be the large focus of today's conversation. Today's episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's guest, Maggie Owad. Maggie, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great to have you on.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andy.
0: Just to kind of kick us off, um, obviously I know who you are, but just in case our listeners haven't come across you online or your work yet, would you be able to kind of outline who you are, what you do, and, and, and give us a bit of an overview of your career journey up till now for context?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My... Um... So my background is kind of an unconventional one. Um, not many people go the route the way that I do. And I was very blessed that it happened the way it had to happen in order for me to be where I'm at today. So my background is I am licensed in the state of Texas as a, as a nurse. And I was practicing in the hospital for about 16 years. Not many people know that about me. And I decided after 16 years, there just needed to be just more changes in healthcare in general. And I went back to get my advanced, my nurse practitioner degree. And to be honest, Andy, one of the reasons why I decided to do that was because I wanted more autonomy. You know, as a nurse, you do have autonomy, but of course there are restrictions because there aren't things that you're able to apply to you know, patients when it comes to specific, you know, drugs or things that you want them to go do as far as, you know, prescribed PT or, you know, an MRI or that kind of nature. And I wanted more of that autonomy with my patients. And so I went back and I got my degree in as a family nurse practitioner. So as a family nurse practitioner, maybe to see anywhere from babies all the way to, to adults, right. And went through the rotations just as you would in a medical you know, I'm not saying exactly as a medical doctor, but we go through OB-GYN and we do, um, you know, psychology, psychiatry, and we do um, work with teenagers and adults. So all the whole lifespan. And I also got a little bit of uh, sports medicine and I, that really piqued my interest. And at that time um, I had an interest in diving a little bit more about sports medicine and why these injuries are happening in the first place. And especially with concussion because they team me up with a, a neuropsychologist and, you know, I was asking him a lot of questions and, and I also that time functional medicine piqued my interest. So I was listening to, you know, Dr. Mark Hyman. I don't know if you know who Dr. Mark Hyman is, but he's one of the big, you know, functional medicine doctors here in America And I remember him doing a research paper about omega-3s and concussions. And it was an incredible, you know, incredible research. And Dr. Dan Engel did the same thing, which, you know, he had a specialty in concussions. And so I went to this neuropsychologist and I said, hey, why don't we start applying some omega-3s for these concussions? There's a lot of studies around it. And he's like, well, there's no research around that. That's just woo-woo, you know, and that really anchored me because I said, you know, there's, there is a lot that Omega threes do offer. And from then on, I just, I said, you know, functional medicine, I wanted to dive more deeper into it. And so that year it was COVID COVID year when I graduated and, um, not the best year to graduate, didn't have a graduation ceremony or anything like that, unfortunately. Um, but it gave me an opportunity after I studied, and I took my boards. It gave me uh, an opportunity, I'm sure, with everyone during the year of COVID to figure out, you know, how what they want to do, you know, gave them some space to figure out, you know, to really have a lot of self-reflection and, and reflect on, you know, your relationships and your work and, and all that kind of thing. And, and for me, it was, you know, what do I want to do with this, you know, degree? What do I want to do as a family nurse practitioner? And, you know, to be honest, working in a clinic or, you know, studying, you know, doing family medicine, working in family medicine didn't really appeal to me because it's the same thing. It was, you know, here's a disease, here's a diagnosis and here's a treatment. And in America, we only got 15 minutes for each patient, you know, to see each patient. And, you know, by the time you say, Hey, how are you? And by the time you, um, maybe listen to their lungs, you know, 15 minutes is already up. Um, and it, that just, that to me, that type of medicine didn't really jive with me. And so I actually reached out to a doctor of mine because I previously had a concussion and, uh, he, this particular doctor, this office worked with the Dallas Mavericks for a long time, just an NBA team. And uh, I said, you know, I want to get into sports medicine. So I applied to Duke to do the one year, you know, I had an acceptance letter saying, you know, we're ready for you to come in and do sports medicine. However, when I did shadow this doctor, I, you know, I, it it just didn't appeal to me because I'm like, well, we're just, you know, I think it's great that they're coming in and we're doing all these, uh, testing, but again, in my mind, what, what's going on within the body that we're not seeing. And so fast forward, Andy, I cross paths with Dr. Arasupaya and he was actually, uh, studying functional medicine for a very long time, but not only that, but he pioneered it into, putting it into practice for athletes. So, meaning functional medicine is looking at the root cause of why this athlete is repetitively having chronic inflammation. Why are they injuring maybe the bicep tendinitis? Why that specific muscle? And I wanted to dive more deeper into that, you know, um, he had a lot of success with working with, you know, golfers in the PGA, um, uh, you know, worked with Phil Mickelson and had a lot of success with him. And again, I just, you know, was mentored under him for, for about six months. And I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to take a leap of faith. And during COVID time and uh, a few months after that, after I was mentored under him, I decided to uh, go on my own and, uh, you know, go down this entrepreneurship road and um, work as a sports functional uh, testing specialist, you know, meaning that I'm looking at the gut, I'm looking at the mitochondrial health and seeing what is causing the inflammation within the athlete and how I can help them recover better and quicker.
0: You mentioned um, sports testing then maybe, maybe if we can talk about like labs first as a, maybe a logical place to kind of go to next. Um, You know, when you do labs as an example for athletes, you know, from a, from a health perspective and a general population standpoint, completely understand why, you know, patient X goes to the doctor with whatever symptoms or condition and they run labs. When it relates to like an athlete, what, what labs do you do? Why do you do them? And how do you collect them?
1: So the labs that I run is very extensive. Okay. So I'm looking at a 360 approach, an athlete or any human being, what we do here in western medicine we have a cardiologist you know we have a pulmonologist we have a neurologist we have a gastroenterologist and they're all important systems and with functional medicine you're looking at the athlete as a 360 that way you can get that 360 approach right so number 1 i start with obviously blood work blood work it is more there's more research in blood work. Um, it is the most reliable thing for you to look at more than gut testing. So with gut, with the blood work, I look at inflammatory markers. You know, I look at HSCRP. Um, I look at, um, you know, I do a complete metabolic test to look at the different nutrients that they're lacking. Um, one of the other things that we see a lot in America in general is metabolic health. And that has to do with also looking at hemoglobin A1C and glucose, those two markers and insulin, those three markers would be how is the body doing metabolically? Okay. Because how we, how we, how our body is uh, breaking down sugar and getting information from that will give us information how we are doing inflammatory wise. So 50% of injuries that happen that has been stated in research correlated with hemoglobin A1c, which is a marker for that you see for diabetes. It's a marker that you check to see how much, let's just say you have a cell and the cell is covered with, you want to see how much sugar is covered around that cell, right? So the hemoglobin A1c is a reflection of that. And you want that number to be less than 5.2. Anything more than 5.2 has shown is that there is a 50% increase in more injuries. And why is that? Because when you have healthy blood going through your organs, your tendons, your muscles, you're going to be able to, number one, recover better. You're going to be able to be less injury prone. And so... That's a really important marker, not just in people that are overweight, obese, but also healthy people and people that are in sports performance as well.
0: Is that like a, was it A1C? Is that what you called it? I would, blah, 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 blah.
1: I would definitely look at a hemoglobin A1C. I would definitely look at a glucose uh, yeah. level as well. Sometimes what, right now what you're seeing, you're seeing these CGMs that are being utilized, continuous glucose monitors. Uh, You're seeing that in a lot of cyclists right now, endurance runners, you know, they want to know how to manipulate, you know, carbs, glycogen. Um, Obviously, if you have a spike in glucose, that can also, you know, the glucose spike can go down. When that goes down really sharply, it can create a lot of fatigue, you know, so you want a really good smooth, um, you know, glucose spikes. You don't want anything that spikes up really quickly and you know create that fatigue i'm gonna
0: go this i'll bring this question back around i'm gonna go a bit long-winded to get there but you know if you speak to a physio a strength coach a sports scientist nutritionist yourself each different professional domain probably has a a bias maybe to what they think is causing the athlete to uh break down have the injury and certain injuries you just can't avoid health wise regardless right like big traumas are big traumas. In a competitive arena, but are you seeing like a elevation of that blood marker leading up to the injury? And is that like could that potentially just be indicative that they are in general fatigued and things that maybe classic load monitoring would pick up? But you're then seeing it physiologically show up in a different way. Is that my am, am I understanding that correctly?
1: Absolutely, because what you're seeing glucose spikes when you are inflamed. Okay. So inflammation can also come as stress, right? So when you're stressed out, you don't have to have a chocolate cake for your glucose to go up, your glucose levels to go up. You could be just in chronic stress all the time where your glucose stays elevated as well.
0: And how how often do you try to collect these things? I'm guessing league schedules, player schedules change everything like they do for everybody. But if, if you're kind of put in science first and you're just like, I want the optimal system for X athlete. How often do you want to be checking these things?
1: You know, I often want to check it around every, uh, you know, ninety to one hundred and twenty days. The lifespan of a red blood uh, uh, cell. Sorry, I can't even talk. Uh, The life span of a red blood cell is about one hundred and twenty days, meaning that we make new blood cells every 120 days. So I definitely wanna check it in that marker when it comes to, for example, vitamin D is huge in the, in, this, in sports, right? Vitamin D is linked to bone and, and fracture risk. So we wanna make sure that those are at optimal levels between 50 to 70, um, anything below 50, you are at significant high risk for fractures. Anything above 70, you're also at high risk for immune suppression. So people think, oh, well, the more vitamin D, that's actually you're suppressing the immune system. So you want that, you want that sweet spot to be in, in between there.
0: I'm sure you work with athletes of different sports. Is there any commonalities or like low-hanging fruit that you see just across the board working with athletes where you do lots of testing, you get lots of data on athlete health and via their blood markers? Is there any low-hanging fruit where you're just like, if everybody – just took care of these few things, it would make maybe a bigger percentage difference over a bigger population.
1: hundred percent. And like I said, I just stated the low hanging fruit right there, vitamin D. Yeah. That is, that is the bare minimum. If we can just really check on vitamin D. I had a guy, a footballer that was 17, Andy, one of the top footballers in the world. Okay. And, and I looked at him and I said, there is no reason, a guy that is your caliber to have that number. You have no business to have that number at all, you know, and you are just literally a ticking time bomb, whether you realize it or not. And that's the thing is that, you know, you get these people, you know, they feel great, you know, you feel great inside. And then before you know it, it's like, oh, well, something happened. You know, I ruptured my tendon or, you know, I I have a fracture. Why did that happen? And that is really what my eyes are trained to see. You know, addition to the gut microbiome, addition to looking at, you know, mitochondrial health and, and testing mitochondrial health, uh, addition to that would be looking at um, the ATP cycle, right? And we're talking about mitochondrial health and looking at what nutrients that they are deficient in. And, you know, sometimes a, a blood work of just, you know, getting a chemistry panel and getting a metabolic panel you know, from the team doesn't cut it sometimes.
0: Do you ever see differences or is there any key differences in what lab values you might prioritize in male versus female athletes? Is there differences depending on which gender that you're working with?
1: That is a great question. So obviously when we're talking about gender, we're talking about hormones. That is the main differentiation that I would, that I would make Andy is looking at hormones um obviously, you know, men gotta deal with one and women are dealing with a lot more. You know what, let me take that back. Okay. I would say both men and women are dealing with testosterones and estrogens on on, you know, because men do carry estrogen as well. So when I do see men carrying estrogens, that typically will also show in a stool sample. And a stool testing and sometimes there's a marker called beta glucuronidase that would be elevated um, and that could be a byproduct of taking in water from plastic bottles um, mainly because which, which
0: there's a lot of in professional sport a um, lot yeah
1: a lot you know it's you know when you have body armor sending you so much free product and you know you're having these water companies sending you all this free product And, you know, it's, it's, you're having xenoestrogens, meaning xeno, meaning fake estrogens in your body, then what you're doing is you're accumulating estrogen in your body, that's going to end up fighting with the testosterone. And so that's one of the things that I find in the gut. Um, Women wise, you know, testosterone is huge. Testosterone is what gives us the, you know, the push, the power, the drive. Right. And when right now what you're seeing is a, a lot of coaches and a lot of physical therapists taking into account whenever they are strength and conditioning coaches, whenever they are training women, they're starting to take into account the cycle of of women and when it is important to incorporate more strength and conditioning. When is it more the best to, to incorporate more stretching? Right what foods based on the cycle of a woman.
0: You mentioned, um, gut as a part of, um, some of those answers. Then let's talk about what you do, how you test it. And I guess like, what's the, for an athlete specifically, not for the, uh, for not for gem pop, but for an athlete, what's the value of, um, you looking into their gut health?
1: Yeah, well, I'm all about gut. Um, one of the things that I didn't share about my story, why the gut to me is such a personal thing is, um, my mom actually had colon cancer and unfortunately she didn't make it right. Um, had a lot of, you know, at 32, it was a very odd situation. Andy at 32, she was, you know, losing weight, throwing up and had all these symptoms. And, you know, unfortunately was very dismissed by a lot of, by a lot of doctors. Of course, if you have 15 minutes in a room, you're not going to listen to a 32 year old potentially thinking that they could have colon cancer. So, um, and then I also have another brother that has, uh, that has ulcerative colitis, you know, and I truly feel like his stuff comes from a lot of probably more emotional, uh, state, uh, than anything else. And, and we'll, we'll touch on that here soon, how the gut and brain access is, is truly tied to each other. So, but as far as athletic performance goes, um, your immune system, 80% of your immune system lies in your gut. And when we, are taking in foods, right? Let's say specifically fiber, Andy, right? Those foods, those fibrous foods, they are turned into something called short chain fatty acids. Okay. These short chain fatty acids are extremely important when we're talking about energy production and we're talking about immunity because whenever the gut receives those types of foods, your immune system that's in your gut creates these cells called T regulatory cells. Those T regulatory cells basically are what creates immune cells and tells each cell what to do and how to fight. Right? So say for example, you get injured. Okay. Uh, if you if your gut is responsible for your immune system I would think that would be the first thing I would want to take care of, you know, Uh, which is why nutrition is such a big part of recovery and inflammation and immunity. Um, And so the main thing is making sure that number one, the gut has enough, something called commensal bacteria. And that's what the way I explain it to my, my guys is commensal bacteria. You want to have a lot of uh, good army. Okay, you want to have good soldiers. So you have an army of bacteria in your gut. And the more you have good soldiers, it would be in your best interest for energy and for immunity and for performance.
0: Every team tends to have some form of system on collecting wellness data for athletes. And that data, whether you're in a training block or competitive season, is, is generally used to sort of see how the athlete feels in response to training or in response to playing. And it guides how much training they can then do on any given day or how much, how ready they are to train or compete. But some of the things that might flag up, like the player has some sniffles, they're a little bit symptomatic of a cold, they didn't sleep well, they're tired. Some of those things obviously bounce around acutely um, day by day and in the season. But I think sometimes from an immunity standpoint, maybe some of those things are getting picked up quite, quite late. You know, the, the player is symptomatic. That's gone quite far down the line that ideally you want to try and avoid from a health and, and a performance standpoint. Is there any... Uh, you're probably the best guess we've had to ask this question to. What are some good ways athletes or people that work with athletes can try and get ahead with athlete immunity in terms of recognizing really early signs before they get to that late stage that flags up on the wellness systems?
1: Again, I think I'm I'm like the vitamin D protester right now. So, definitely the vitamin D. That's an indicative marker and it plays so much role in immunity. And what people don't know is that vitamin D is actually absorbed in your small intestine. Okay? So, you need calcium in order in your in your small intestine to absorb the vitamin D. So, making sure that you do have enough of that, making sure that the player is between the ranges of 50 and 70, um, when you're doing the blood work. Another thing would be zinc to looking at zinc levels, making sure that the zinc is in, is in check and in an optimal level. Um, and in times where if you have an athlete that's traveling a lot, I mean, I would say go ahead and, you know, making sure that they're supplementing with vitamin D, making sure that they're supplementing with zinc. And also another big thing would be vitamin C is to go ahead and do that. Um, I mean, obviously every different sport is different based on some are traveling a lot, whether it's the NBA, obviously you're having, you know, a game every other day and and you're traveling with American football, uh, you're traveling once a week. It's not as much. And so um, you know, it really depends, but I would say those three things I would definitely have on board. If it's someone that is really susceptible to being sick and having a lot of upper respiratory issues, um, those three things would be the best thing.
0: Obviously, you know, you run very medically kind of grounded tests on athletes from the labs, uh, stool samples of the gut. Is there, do you, do you ever have any overlap with uh, other things, you know, like whoop aura. there's all these, uh, wearable tech, tools that athletes and normal people if we call us mere mortals normal people um there's lots of this tech that people are now using to monitor you know cardiac stuff and maybe indicators of where they're at fatigue wise and other things is there any like day-to-day systems or tools like that that might overlap with some of the things that you see obviously they don't give you labs and they don't give you gut stuff but is there wellness things that people day-to-day are looking at now that might match up with what you might see on the labs and on the, on the gut samples?
1: Yeah. I love that you asked this question because I have a really cool story about this. Uh, I do take into account HRV. Uh, one of the things that I have my clients do is for them to, well, usually they don't do it. It's usually either they're, if they have a chef, they'll do it or they'll do it or they'll have their trainer, you know, fill out a seven day diary log. They'll also fill out a, um, when they're training. So that's really important. If they have a physical therapist, I get with their physical therapist to know when they're having physical therapy, when they're sleeping, when they're, when they wake up, But when it comes to that. So that way I can just know what, how, how their nervous system is regulated. You know, what, you know, that way I'm looking at things in context right so if it's like oh my gosh you know if their hrv is like 50 i got to do something and it's like you know well they just they literally they went through a lot of training and sometimes you want them to be at that threshold and not intervene okay so there's kind of like an art to it where you don't want to sit here and throw you know, glutathione and and throw magnesium on someone when they're trying to make gains in their sport. Right. So you want to look at the whole context of things, but going back to the story, I asked, I also had a Australian footballer that came to me because he said his HRV would just cannot go above 30. He's like, Maggie, I've, I've done cold baths. Like you know, I've done breath work, you know, I've done, I've done everything. Okay. Cut out the alcohol and he's a very committed, very disciplined athlete, you know, and sleeps well. He's like, I just feel like there's something wrong with my gut. And I said, you know what, let's go ahead and test it. Well, long and behold, and I don't want to get disgusted. Anyone disgusted here on this podcast but there was a parasite. He had some, he had picked up a parasite somehow. It could have been in the water system. It could have been in the salad that he ate. It could have been in a, in a, in a, in a uh, meat that wasn't cooked very properly. And I said, bam, like this is exactly why your HRV is low because your body is using so much energy to fight this parasite off that it doesn't even have time for to recover your foot or recover from, you know, training yesterday or re, or recover from whatever it is. And so I gave him two options. I said, listen, there, there are two ways that we can tackle this. One is I like to do the naturopathic way because I don't want to just give you antibiotics and, and, uh, and kill more, you know, good bacteria in your gut. Um, and, but that's going to take about anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. Or you could do a <laughs> two-week cycle of flagell and it will be completely gone. And of course, he's young and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to do the two-week and I'm flagell and I'm good and I'm just going to kill this parasite. And he got better. Like his HRV is now immaculate. But it just blows my mind that when we're looking at something like this, that how the gut and the brain, how that is so interconnected and it's so powerful. And that's what that's what gives me a lot of joy when I see that, you know, like, oh, it's not set in stone. It's something so new, but it's something that is so vital.
0: How much do you see with your athletes that you work with in a more kind of serial, very regular way? how often do you see kind of like, I don't know, uh, other stresses change things, you know, like late stage, big game moments and, you know, key, key seasonal changes, like they have to win a certain game to get the playoffs or whatever, or I don't know, contracts are about to be up. Do you see, how much do you see those like day-to-day, like I'm, I'm going to say mental stresses just to make it easier to understand, but like how often do those mental stresses then affect what you see in the physical of the gut health?
1: Uh As a high performer, whether you are an entrepreneur, I know maybe the majority of the people on this podcast are probably entrepreneurs or probably are working with teams, um, working with a lot of clients, um, just feel extremely stressed out. So obviously stress for an athlete, an overachiever, what that does is it's going to elevate more catecholamines, which is like more cortisol, right? And when we are expressing so much cortisol throughout the day, that's going to affect our gut. That's going to affect the lining of our gut, right? And what you see is when these athletes are extremely stressed out, chronic stress, then those chemicals that are released that are unhealthy, are going to destroy the junctions within the gut. And I didn't really go into this that much because I don't know how sciencey you want me to get.
0: Go for Just it. Go for it. People, people, people can always have Google on the go while they good listen. On, like myself. Okay, I'm let's, let's do
1: good science. All right, let's yeah. let's let's kick it off with this then. So that in between the junctions of the gut, there's something called occlutin and zonulin levels or occlutin and zonulin. So when I test, I look at the levels. I look at occludin, I look at zonulin, I look at actomycin. So think of them as gates, okay? Think of them as they are there to stick together between each colon cell. That way, nothing that we eat gets into the bloodstream. However, when you have things like chronic stress, which is what an athlete has, right? They're on camera. Oh my gosh, they missed the shot. They didn't get the shot in. Oh, they kicked the ball. They should have kicked it and it didn't go in the goal. Right. Or I have this injury and I need to get quicker, better, you know, then that causes a lot of stress for things like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, right? Chronic ibuprofen use that is going to loosen the junctions of the intestines of the occlidin and levels. Those are going to be a threat to those occlidin and zonulin actomycin, which is why I look at those and they're itty, itty, tiny. And they just, they're just, they're just there hanging on because whenever those things get affected by chronic stress, NSAIDs, food sensitivities, a lot of other things that we don't really talk about, then they will loosen those junctions and you create a cascade of something called gut impermeability and gut impermeability is just a fancy word for leaky gut. Okay. So when you do have leaky gut, then what will happen is you could have also a cascade of something that your body can develop food sensitivities. All right. Not food allergies. People get so confused between that. They're allergic to something and that they're sensitive to something. Those are two different things. If you're allergic to fish and you eat fish, you're going to end up going to the emergency room and you better have an epinephrine pen next to you. Okay. Okay. If you're sensitive to something, say for example, I'm sensitive to blueberries. If I eat a blueberry and I have a leaky gut, it's going to go through those junctions that are not tight. Remember, we talked about that. It's going to go in the bloodstream, and I might just wake up and be like, why do I not feel rested? Why are my joints in pain? why am I so fatigued so those are some of the symptoms that you will see with food sensitivities that can really be wreaking havoc on your performance especially as an athlete
0: one of the last things I wanted to kind of quiz you on in this in this conversation was uh, Um, about like (laughs) post post post-op prep and post-op recovery yeah Um, and maybe, maybe not in the context of like, you know, athlete has a, a trauma at a game and they're rushed off to surgery because you can't always prepare for that, obviously. Um, but let's say it's, you know, the athlete who's scheduled their ACL surgery um, a week, two weeks, whatever in advance, you know it's coming up um, or they're having some form of elective orthopedic surgery and you've got as a physio or nutritionist coach, whoever, you've got time to think about it and act. From a... A gut from a inflammatory perspective from all the kind of different things that you look at, how can people that work with athletes best prep them to go into surgery and come out of surgery systemically in a good place?
1: Okay. So number one thing is free. This is something that is completely free, something you do not have to buy. Number one is sleep like we're not going to tippy toe around sleep because sleep is where you is where you recover and where you heal. Right. So I really wanted to put that out there before I went to supplements and I went to foods um, and really making sure that you're getting the good quality, deep sleep in order to heal um, and, and also create uh, more growth hormone, you know, growth hormone spikes the highest between um, I believe I remember I talked about this one time between 11 and 1 p.m is when growth hormone spikes and when that spikes that's that's a time when you have the most recovery okay um, another thing is protein okay and I'm and we're gonna up the protein usually with post-operative operative, uh, patients, you want to get anywhere from 2.2 to three grams per kilogram. A lot of people be like, that's a lot. Well, yeah, you just had your muscle cut through, you know, you, you, or maybe perhaps you had a screw in your bone. So those are really important because what happens is that when you're immobile, you start losing muscle mass and, I've seen physios on the floor that do an incredible, incredible job because by the way, I didn't get to, I didn't mention that for 16 years, I did pre-op and post-op and I worked on the surgical floor. So it is so horrendous. Some of the foods that was given to patients on a hospital, I've seen it with my own eyes and it is incredibly disgusting. Okay. Okay. But some of the things were also good. What I realized is that they weren't getting enough protein. So you definitely want to make sure that you're preserving your muscle mass. Um, because I've had the experience of working in the hospital, I also know that anesthesiologists, they do give ancef or they do give an antibiotic. And that is to obviously make sure to preserve, you know, any bad bugs because you're about, you are exposing a wound to an outside um outside environment, right? So they do give you a bag of antibiotics. Um, usually it's ANSEF, you know, one to two grams um, in a bag. And so uh, one of the things that if I know that my client or athlete is going to surgery, I start them on uh, a probiotic uh, because I want them to preserve the good commensal bacteria that's in their gut. And so we'll do that and that could include something that has uh, saccharomyces biarty, you know, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, you know, maybe anywhere from, you know, at least 50 billion, uh, in order to make sure that, you know, you preserve, uh, you know, the good bacteria in your gut, uh, polyphenols, polyphenols is an anti-inflammatory. Uh, well, there are foods that are anti-inflammatory. So things like you know, berries or pomegranates or, you know, green tea, turmeric, those are really high in polyphenols and that will help with the inflammation. Um, let's see here, making sure that you're hydrated. So you're aiding in, you know, nutrient transport and removal of waste products within the body. Um, omega-3 fatty acids is my favorite anti-inflammatory in the world. And there is so much research. Uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, she does an incredible job talking about the research behind omega-3 fatty acids, <clears throat> excuse me. And now it's, <clears throat> excuse me, and how it's crucial to upregulate the anti-inflammatory responses. Um, not just in with post-op, but also with pre-op as well. <clears throat> excuse me, I got a frog stuck in my throat. Um, and so a lot of those things is that you can get supplementation with it. Um, I usually up it up. So say for example, with concussions, I like to be in the two to 3000 gram range, um, with, with, uh, injury, the same range as that really dial up more fat fish. That's fatty. So fatty fish, such as salmon, um, Omega-3 fatty acids, flax seeds have fatty have fatty acids in there, walnuts, chia seeds. Um, making sure that you are good with iron and B12. Um, iron and B12, they're essential with uh, red blood cell formation. So you want to make sure that you have enough red blood cells because red blood cells carry oxygen. So we need the oxygen in order to heal our wounds. Glycine. Glycine is important, as you probably heard, that's in bone broth. So the whole bone broth craze is, is, is not a mistake. Did you know that I found out that Kobe Bryant used to drink bone broth before every single game? Isn't that crazy? So Um, I actually am reading the book of his nutritionist right now. She's absolutely phenomenal, but it's because it carries glycine and glycine is important for tendon repair. So glycine would be a really good one. Um, and they have it. You could do bone broth. Bone broth has the highest amount of glycine, but if you want to supplement, you can. My thing is that you don't have to supplement everything. So you could do, you could do corporate foods. Um, and then as far as like people ask me, what's the best diet, you know, should I do keto or should I do, you know, this or that? And most of the research that I've seen that has been the best is the Mediterranean diet because the Mediterranean diet is really high in omega threes. Is has- that
0: obviously that obviously Mediterranean diet is good in general health. Is that even more pertinent when it's um, like post-op for somebody?
1: not yeah for post-op and just for, in general, for the general population. Um, they utilize a lot of, you know, grains, fiber, uh, like I said, fish in the Mediterranean diet. That's, and I, you know, that's just pertaining to the fact that it's very extremely anti-inflammatory. And so, um, I would, I would incorporate more of that.
0: One supplement or one thing that's getting a lot of kind of mainstream attention at the moment is creatine. Obviously, everyone will know from Physiology 101 that from an energy system point of view, creatine is good for performance. But where does creatine fit in terms of post-op recovery? I know there's a kind of neuroprotective aspect to it, which is the thing being thrown around the Internet a lot at the moment. Where does creatine sit as a supplement in terms of post-op recovery?
1: You know what? This is where... I say that I don't know enough about creatine in post-op or have read. And I'm usually very completely honest, Andy, when it comes to, you know, answering questions, because I want to make sure that I give the audience the most factual specific information that I know. Um, so I haven't read any research about, you know, post-op recovery, you know, with, um, orthopedics and, and creatine or anything like that, but, it is a very popular supplement. It is a supplement that definitely has a lot of the neuroprotective effects, and I can stand by that because there's enough research that I've read about um, that five grams of creatine um, daily has has shown to help with um, you know uh, protection of Alzheimer's disease and um, all those you know Parkinson's disease. So it's, it's pretty fascinating in, in that route.
0: Cool. Well, I'm incredibly mindful that I could easily turn this conversation into just a selfish, what diet should I have? And what, what diet should I, do I you have?
1: have. Um, I but, doing that.
0: <laughs> um, you've been incredibly uh, detailed and, and really, in, just really interesting to listen to talking about this, because I think as a podcaster in this space, I'm guilty of this too. We don't hear enough about people that do the work that you do. And it, we tend to do the rounds of physios, S&C coaches and sports scientists uh, to nauseam. So it's good to hear your perspective on performance of this as well.
1: Yeah. Well, I just want to add something that there is a high level of respect that I have for physiotherapists. I have, you know, most of my, I would say, friends or colleagues that are in sports are physiotherapists. And the reason being is because without... Y'all, I mean, my work would be nothing, right? Like, and I just think we, we complement each other so well because, you know, you're dealing with, with so many external factors and, and, you know, certain strengthening exercises and certain things that I have no clue about, you know, and there's, there's so much respect around that. And I love when we can have an athlete and work together where there is absolutely no ego, right? Put ego on the side and where I can come in as a scientist and you have a physiotherapist. And I've seen it. I've done it with, with an athlete that has had the most amazing season NBA uh, athlete career in his life, where you have the chef, you have the physiotherapist, you have me, you have the nutritionist, you have the coach strength and conditioning and working as a team with no ego. It's such a beautiful thing. So I want to thank you.
0: Not completely. Where's the, um, where's the best place for the listeners to follow you and uh, see the ideas that you're sharing and see what you're up to.
1: So I'm, I'm really active on Instagram. Um, So it's Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E dot A-W-A-D underscore someone took my name. That's why I had to put that underscore. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it's like, how dare they? And then, um, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, obviously you know how it is. It's kind of like, you know, Instagram, you've got your friends on there and you know, they try to support your work for the most part. 95% of my, what I have on Instagram is work related. And then LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn because I get to also collaborate with amazing physiotherapists, amazing chefs that are in Europe, um, that are in the outside world, in the Middle East. And I get to see their work. I mean, there's this guy that I follow that's in Germany that's absolutely phenomenal, um, that's working with a football team out there doing the same work as I'm doing, and and his football team is having such an Incredible amount of success. So I love being there and seeing and learning from my colleagues um, on LinkedIn as well.
0: Cool. Well, we'll put your social details in the, uh, in the episode description, but thank you so much for, uh, for coming thank on the show. You.
1: Thank you, Andy. I appreciate it.